until we get through the pandemic, the valuations that you see on just about anything on the ownership market are going to be skewed. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. This is Jake McClure. This is the personal wealth coach. And on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Hello, Jeff McClure. You know, Hello, I, Jeff. I, I don't get to call him that very often. Usually I call him dad. You do call me Jake often, though. I do. You can call me anything you want to, just as long as you don't call me late to dinner. It seems like I've heard that before somewhere. Just your imagination. <laughs> this podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old. Right. Uh, being listened to on a TWA airplane on a company from a TWA doesn't exist anymore either. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. All right. So we had a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. We've, um, we've got uh, the, the president-elect announced a stimulus package. On top of the stimulus package that was signed by the existing president, we have numbers that came out for retail sales. We've got numbers that came out for the trade deal on uh, our deal with China. Um, what do you want to talk about first? We got lots of stuff. Well, I think it's not very pleasant, but we probably ought to talk about the big driver right now. The, the pandemic? And I think it's very important. Moody's uh, did an analysis on it. And it pretty much, it's similar, it's similar to the one the CDC did, except Moody's was more precise. They said that if we get if the vaccinations accelerate, in other words, if they if they get organized, which they aren't very well right now, and it looks like there's an organization forming at the federal level to control them, and we get good production in vaccinations, around September we'll get herd immunity and this thing will be over. Right. So what does that mean? What it means is that if you get enough people that are immune either from having the disease but not dying from it, um, or getting vaccinated then it slows down the spread quickly so the herd is fairly well immune and it kind of insulates those that are less immune by all the people that have already gotten either vaccinated or have had the disease the vac since you become immune to the vac to the virus at least temporarily once you get once you're infected the virus has to find new hosts that aren't immune 
Otherwise, the spread of the virus will die down and finally just stop spreading. Um, how long will that last? Well, probably every year or two, just like with the flu shot, you'll have to get another vaccination. As a matter of fact, there's already discussion of integrating it into your influenza shot. The point is, we're in a pandemic. It's strongly affecting the economy. And there's some bad news, and I hate to break the break, and I, hate, I don't like bad news any more than you do. But the CDC has announced that probably the new viral strain, the one that's far more contagious, will be dominant in the United States about March. In England, when that happened, I don't know if you've been following this, but in England, they've had a complete shutdown again, a lockdown again. And the reason they had to have the lockdown is the hospitals filled up and were overflowing. They had a 50% jump in hospitalizations in two weeks from COVID in December. And at the beginning of December, they, no they officially noted that the, vi the new strain of the virus that first was identified in Great Britain, or in England rather, was uh, dominant. Two weeks later, they had a 50% jump in hospitalizations and the hospital started overflowing. Our hospitals in the United States and many places in the United States, like in California and in the Northeast right now, and to some places in the Midwest, the hospitals are reaching capacity. There's definitely a surge going on. We have a record number of hospitalizations going on right now, and, it's, and it seems to be accelerating. The death rate seems to be accelerating. Not the death rate per infection, but the death rate in the population. It's accelerating. It's not slowing down, which so, means... From an economic point of view, this is the important thing. From economics, that means that there will be an effect over the next several months, particularly in the first quarter, on the economy from the pandemic. But it's temporary. Right. So, uh, and I, I feel obligated to explain why we bring this up. We're not infectious disease specialists. We don't know anything more about the disease itself than the experts do. The experts know a lot more than us. Why are we talking about these numbers? And this is the bottom line. And this is, it, it doesn't matter if the numbers are correct. How's that for weird? Because people are like, those numbers are probably not even right. Well, they may not be. It doesn't matter. The belief associated with those numbers is what causes the economy to slow down. If you know someone who has been sick or died of COVID, you're less likely to go out in a crowd. That's, that is, this is not rocket surgery we're talking about here. From the economic perspective, these numbers on the pandemic are really, really important, even if they're wrong. They're, they're important because it affects the way each of you who are listening to this program buys things and, and sells things. This is a great example. House prices are way up. Why are they way up? Well, it's twofold. Interest rates are really low. There's a lot of people there, so there's a lot of money that's out there waiting to be loaned out to people to buy houses. And the second thing is a lot of people that have been thinking about selling their house are not putting their house on the market because they don't want unknown people breathing in their house that don't buy the house. So that causes the prices to go up drastically in this. This is an effect of the econ on the economy on the belief of whether or not somebody coming into their house may or may not be sick. And it's big enough that it's extremely measurable across the entire economy, not just in house prices, obviously in retail sales, obviously in all these other areas. These numbers are a precursor. 
when those numbers come out, it causes the other things to occur. When we talk about these numbers, when we say, hey, it looks worse, we've got a higher death rate, what we can give you, I can, there's only one guarantee I can give on this. The numbers are not right. I don't think that they're drastically wrong, but there's no way we can count all the numbers accurately first time almost ever, anywhere. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're counting a vote or counting the number of people that have been tested for things or even counting tax revenue. They have to revise that. They revise the GDP eight times before it's final, every quarter. <laughs> so it's like four years after the quarter is finished that they say, yep, that's the final one. for it." But they still call it the final estimate. So, I, and I, I feel like I have to say this every week, but it is important for you to understand, we're not trying to fear monger the, the pandemic. We're not trying to say that the pandemic is horrible. And, and what we are trying to say is that the numbers out there have a direct impact on the economy. And the number one reason to cause the economy to grow right now would be the removal of the pandemic. There, there's, you know, who's president, whether or not we raise taxes on corporations by, uh, uh, jump it back up by, uh, you know, effectively 5%, a 5% raise in corporate taxes would have about 1% of the impact of the numbers that we just quoted. A 5% increase on, on corporate tax rates would have about 1% of the effect on the economy as what the pandemic is doing right now. How do I know that? Because I watched what happens when we, what happened when we dropped the tax rate on corporations by about 5% effectively. We had a, a slight boom in the economy. It wasn't a massive boom. We were up in the 4% growth rate for two quarters. The key here is to recognize that this short-term third wave effect is not only historically standard, but that it's temporary. It means it's almost over. The 1918 flu had a third wave that was far more devastating than the first or second waves, and we're looking at the third wave coming in. It's going to be rough. We have the ability to control it by giving anything, be more careful about keeping your distance from people and wearing masks. I know a lot of people think it's not right to wear a mask. It's not any good. But there's very, very strong studies right now that show the people, the areas where people wear masks, the virus spreads much more slowly than the areas where they don't wear masks. Keeping your distance, it's only going to be a few more months and we can get through this thing. We can but do I, it, guys. We can do it. But I strongly suspect with the fatigue, and it's a natural fatigue that people have to the prevention uh, behaviors that we've, tried to implement in the United States. The fatigue with that is wearing people out. And as a result, we're probably going to get another big wave of it. It's going to hit the hospitals. It's already starting shutdowns in the state of Texas. And it's going to affect the economy. But that is not permanent. That is a temporary thing that's going on. The big thing to take away from this, and it's, there's a wonderful article, in matter of fact, it's the cover article of, uh, from The Economist, is the Roaring Twenties are coming. And the Roaring Twenties are coming because of business investment, because of investment in technology, in automation, in robotics. Major changes coming in the United States, not unlike the change that came in the 1920s. There's a huge economic boom coming. We just got to wait about nine months for it to get here. Yep. 
and, and I don't I don't think it's here. Here's let me kind of take a step back there before I start four sentences and not stop any of them. Um, nine months is when we believe that the totality of the country will be ready to be expanding. There are going to be pockets that are expanding earlier on. Uh, and that's where we are now. We're looking at, in, in the past, since the pandemic started, there were very small pockets that were expanding. As the vaccination comes out, those pockets are going to get bigger. And some pockets that didn't exist before will start to form. And then as enough people have reached immunity that we can go back to work, go back to business, I expect a boom to, to occur. There, there's some possible negatives to that boom, like we may have some inflation coming out of it, but the reality is that this is going to be a big boom from everything that I can see. There's a lot of cash, and the surveys that the Wall Street Journal have done recently on what do you expect to do after you're finished and, and fully vaccinated? And uh, a vast majority of people who've been sitting on a lot of cash have said that they're going to start splurging. Well, what does that even mean? A lot of people have just not taken vacations for a year, of, that have had canceled vacations or canceled trips. There's going to be a lot of traveling. There's going to be a lot of people buying things that are not buying things right now. This is, this is again, pure behavior. What do people do when the night has passed and you've been scared all night. Well, you go out into the light, and that's what's going on. So we, we expect that boom to occur, and it really to start getting into gear about nine months out. That, that's my statement on the subject. Do you think we have hit the pandemic hard enough? Or? I think we've hit it hard enough. Okay. So... Um, we can't get away from it. The pandemic is... is Man, it is, it is it is the 900-pound gorilla in the room with us, and you can't ignore it. You can try to right. kind of talk, but it's there. Well, here, look, the next news subject I was going to talk about. Is, uh, it, it, it doesn't sound like we're talking pandemic at all. Uh, a year on, this is Wall Street Journal, China falls short on, tr on trade deal targets. Remember, phase one took place at the beginning of last year, January 15. That was yesterday, a year ago yesterday. We signed phase one. We're supposed to have phase two by March. And we said in January that we thought part of the reason why the Chinese were, were signing so quickly is because the outbreak that they had looked like it was worse than what they were reporting, and they wanted to get the deal out of the way so that they could concentrate on it. Well, it was bigger. Um, but why did they fall short? And how much did they fall short? They agreed to pay uh, to buy a, an additional $159 billion in U.S. goods by the end of 2020. They bought $82 billion, 52% of what they agreed to do. Why? Very easy. We wouldn't let them buy during the pandemic. We couldn't sell to them during the pandemic when we were in the shutdown. A lot of the stuff that they were trying to buy was stuff that we weren't able to sell. So... Even though we said, we're leaving the pandemic conversation, this is still the pandemic conversation. The trade deal with China, uh, they may be doing their best to avoid doing it, but I don't see evidence of that. What I do see evidence of is they're not able to, to bring up a high enough demand to buy the things that they agreed to do based on 
normal, healthy economy conditions, when we hit a global recession from the pandemic, it was just not possible to buy that much good. There was, there was no physical way to transport the goods because of the, of the quarantines. So even though, as you said, <laughs> we're done talking about the 900-pound gorilla, and now on to the 900-pound gorilla. It's and, and you notice it's not a 600-pound gorilla; it's a 900-pound gorilla. <laughs> yeah, China uh, may even be an elephant. China's trade surplus hit the highest ever monthly level in December. It rose at 18. Let's see, exports grew 18.1 percent in dollar terms last month, while imports rose by 6.5 percent. At the same time in December, our balance of trade, which is insignificant really, hit a record, and our imports from China hit a record. Note that this is despite the fact the tariffs are still in place. We don't talk about the tariffs much anymore. But the tariffs did an interesting thing. They did not raise the price of goods and services coming out of China. And the our buying of things from China has accelerated dramatically during the pandemic, during the tariff period. And it's tremendous. It's a fascinating thing to look at. We've said this before, and we'll say it again. Tariffs are ineffective unless you consider them effective at destroying economies that impose the, the yeah, creating war. They're ineffective as a means of preventing somebody else's trade from doing well. They're very effective as a means of generating tax revenue. They do generate tax revenue, and they do create problems in the countries that, that impose them. But, you know, John sent us this message earlier about the fact that companies are expanding their presence in China, their manufacturing presence in China, despite the tariffs. And it's not a matter of despite the tariffs. The fact is the tariffs have become background noise at this point. Well, the bottom line to what we're seeing economically right now, and will be through at least September, is, and even after September, we'll have the rebound from the coronavirus pandemic. You can't ignore the fact that there's a pandemic going on. It affects just about everything. It affects our factory production. It affects people spending uh we've had a we had a drop in consumer spending in december we talked about that being unusual it was directly related to the fact that the the coronavirus is surging people were asked in surveys are you shopping uh are you buying more things are you saving more money and they said we're saving more money we're not buying things we're hunkering down and when asked why they said we know people who have been very seriously disabled for long time by the coronavirus and we know people who are hospitalized and we know people who are dying and it causes people to hunker down and have fear and we just have to get through this uh it also increases the probability of a big rebound on the other side we got a question from john though by the way he wanted to know about municipal bonds uh, is there any reason to stay away from municipal bonds well the bottom line to it is a lot of municipal bonds are being offered right now so the supply is high yeah People are buying them like mad because the interest rate on municipal bonds is higher than government bonds. The problem with bonds in general is people I don't think, people who buy bonds generally don't grasp the idea that when interest rates rise, bond values fall. When interest rates fall, bond values rise. I cannot conceive of a situation where interest rates would fall. <laughs> they've actually been falling for about 35 years now. Yeah. 
and interest rate and bonds have consistently appreciated in value, you hold bonds in your portfolio, they go up. Why? Because interest rates have been going down. If you held bonds in your portfolio this year, they went up a lot because interest rates dropped a lot. But once we come out of the pandemic, interest rates are very likely to start up. Matter of fact, they've already started up. They're not very high. They're still very, very low, near record lows. But interest rates have already started to go up simply because there's vaccinations going on. The 10-year Treasury note, which is the benchmark for interest rates, has risen above 1%. Now, that's still a negative real interest rate because what, what was CPI? What did that come out at? 1.4? Uh, yeah, let me see here exactly. Yeah, 1.4 before seasonal adjustment. So uh, I'm looking at seasonal adjustments as being realistic right now. Uh, yeah. So 0.4% so, is what happened in December after seasonal adjustments. But I think the 1.4 before seasonal adjustment is, is a more reasonable. Go ahead. I'm annually, year over year, it's 1.4, I think. Uh-huh. So basically, if inflation is 1.4%, and you're getting 1% on a, on a uh, treasury note for 10 years, you have a negative real interest rate. That's not going to stay around. Uh, I feel a great deal of confidence once the business starts, once business starts booming in the second half of the year and going into 2022, once things start surging and people start borrowing money and, people st- and things start to happen again, we will see interest rates now, I'm not talking about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I'm talking about interest rates in general gradually working their way up. That means if you buy a municipal bond now, let's say you bought a 15-year municipal bond, and you wanted to sell it at any point in the next 15 years, there is a distinct possibility that it would be worth less than you paid for it. So bonds are a little scary right now, to say the least. Uh, they're very tempting. Because they've been going up, and as a matter of fact, if I were a stockbroker, it'd be really easy to sell bonds. Yeah. I could get cold call and sell bonds, and I think people are doing that. But the problem is there's a great deal of risk in the bond market right now, and that's universally economists and market watchers universally are saying that. So bonds are kind of scary right now, to say the least. Say the well, least. Stock, stocks are scary too, some of them. The S and P five hundred is up in territory. Well, there's two. There's two, we can talk about that too. Right. There's two positions to take on the S and P five hundred. One is that it's way overpriced, and the other one is that it's underpriced. And I can prove both of them through historic uh, examples. Right. Which is weird. Yeah. The number one example is price to earnings ratio is high for the market. But another way of looking to see if the market is high is to compare its dividend yield, the average dividend yield of the market against the 10-year treasury note. And by that, it says it's low. The 10-year treasury, if you bought the S&P, if you bought an S&P 500 inexpensive, low-cost S&P 500 index fund today, your dividend yield on that fund would be about 1.6%. Now compare that to the fact that Treasuries, 10-year treasuries, which carry about the same risk as the S&P 500 for 10 years, are yielding just barely over 1%. So from strictly an income point of view, it makes more sense to buy the S&P 500 than it is than it does to buy. Now, I'm not saying you should buy the S&P 500 because uh, the problem is it's overpriced. There, there's other ways of approaching this that would make more sense and still get you the dividends. But... Uh, we're in a position where we can honestly say that S&P 500 is both overpriced and underpriced at the same time, which is why it hasn't crashed, probably. Yeah. So what does that mean to us? It means that until we get through the pandemic, the valuations that you see on just about anything 
on the ownership market are going to be skewed. Uh, this is something all week I've talked about. Uh, I've got a whole series of people that are saying, hey, I want to buy a house or I'm going to uh, buy a new house and rent it out or whole series of these these all week. Why? Well, because house prices are up so high and people are looking at their house value and they're saying, well, it's worth a lot more. I've only been in the house for two years and it's appreciated by 50%. What's going on here? The reason why it's appreciated so much is because interest rates are low. The expense of building a new house is high. That's due to trade war and pandemic. So labor prices are up, lumber prices are basically every part of building a house price is up except for the financing, which is low, which means it's easy to get money and everything's more expensive. When you're talking about the, the house market, particularly if you're buying, if you're thinking about buying a house in cash, it may be worth waiting for interest rates to start back up so that the price has a downward pressure on it. If you're buying with cash, the interest rate's not going to save you anything anyway. So that that's one of those things when we're talking about the market, whether it's the real estate market, the bond market, or the stock market, valuations are off. And the only way we'll be able to say if you've made a good decision is by looking back five or 10 years from now and saying, yeah, that was a good decision. So when you're about to buy something, one of the biggest questions, the number one question that we ask when people are saying, should I buy or should I sell? The first question we ask, is the market up? Well, yes. Well, that would tend to make us say, don't buy. Is the market down? Well, no. Well, yep, still don't buy. And, and when people come to us and say, should we sell? It's usually when the market is really low and we say, is the market up? And they say, no, well, and then don't, don't sell here. All of that means that you have to have some baseline, which is that you've got a diversified portfolio. You're not concentrated in just a few stocks because whether the price is high or low or not, there's a great deal of other risk associated with an individual stock than being diversified across the entire marketplace. But if you're well diversified and the market is up, I wouldn't take your life savings and dump it in. If you're well diversified and the market is down, guess what? I wouldn't take your life savings and dump it in then either. I would take what you can afford to, to invest above your emergency and your normal cash reserve levels at a healthy rate and invest it. And when the market is as high as it is, we get lots of people calling in and saying, I want to get more aggressive because they're watching the aggressiveness of the market, the returns of the market right now. Now is not the time to get more aggressive. And I, I've heard that question, oh, I don't know, seven times this week. Should I get more aggressive? And the fact that they're asking that question means that they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be getting more aggressive. When I get seven people asking in the same week that it, should we get more aggressive, I say no. There's a, a unilateral across the board, no. Do not get more aggressive right now. We may consider getting more aggressive later in the year. But the fact that you're all asking at the same time means that we're already in ir irrational exuberance. And it may be irrational exuberance that stays around a long time. Like when Alan Greenspan quoted Schiller, and saying irrational exuberance, it was four years before the market dropped. 
So we may have four more years of crazy uh, growth in the market, or we well, could see the drop tomorrow, <laughs> or not tomorrow, it, that's Sunday. Consensus among bond purchasers right now, and the reason interest rates are up a little bit, is that in the fourth quarter of 2022, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. That seems like a long ways away. It's it's 2021. Yeah, so that's nearly two full years out. They were saying 2023 before, and the reason is the stimulus bill. We the issue is that the economy was going to remain a lot low. The bond, the collective wisdom of the bond buyers in the market, bond buyer, bond traders, is that the new stimulus bill proposed by President Biden, President-elect Biden, that is due to be considered by a uh, Senate and a House that where the Democrats have a majority vote is likely to pass in some form or another. And that new stimulus bill will help the economy recover quicker, put more people back to work quicker, and thereby generate the potential for inflation quicker. Therefore, they're saying that interest rates will probably start up in the fourth quarter of 2022 at this point. Now, forecasting isn't very good in any circumstances, but the bond market is probably a more consistent forecaster than anything else that I know of. Yeah. Um, when we're looking at the bonds now, and this goes back to that question, I, I know you answered it, but I'm going to say it again. Bonds have a lot of risk associated with them right now. Getting into bonds when interest rates are this low, I, I, I don't know how to explain this any better way. You have a great potential for loss unless you hold it to maturity so you should be looking at the quality of the bonds that you're buying a lot more than usual. If you're looking at buying them now, you may be stuck holding them till maturity if you don't want to sell them at a loss. The other thing is you need to look at the interest rate that the bonds are, are, are paying and say, how does that relate to probable inflation going forward? The Fed has set a target rate of 2% and said they'd be perfectly happy for the inflation to get above 2%. And we're getting certain warnings because of restrictions in capacity right now in, in, in capacity, both in shipping and in, um, in, in actual manufacturing things that we could get inflation a little sooner than we think. And if we, that, if that in fact occurs, then interest rates will rise. And if interest rates rise and inflation rises, it's very possible that if you bought a 10-year bond or a 15-year bond right now and you held it to maturity, what you would get back at the tail end might buy a lot less than what you paid for the bond, including even when you factor in interest rates, interest payments, that is. Now, now that we were talking about specifics of an investing in a specific type of uh, asset class, I want to come back to some of the other numbers that are out there. So our unemployment rate is around 6.7%. And when I was first starting in this business uh, back in 1991, that was a relatively low unemployment rate. Do you remember that? I do. I, we just, you're coming out of a couple of recessions. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking and being told as I was learning that if we ever had an unemployment rate that dropped below 6%, we were going to get runaway inflation. And we didn't get that because those models were all based on only the United States being the workforce rather than other places being a workforce. We, we got our unemployment rate down to the, the low 3% range before the pandemic. 
what does that mean? Well, now we've got this jump up. In December, we lost 140,000 jobs. Why? When, when December is generally the, the high sales month, this is when we expect retail sales to be up. We had retail sales down. Well, this is back to the pandemic again. Uh, the good news on this, which is kind of mixed news, is that the average hourly earnings increased in December. So we lost jobs, but earnings increased. How did that happen? This is one of those um, sad moments or there's a difference between irony and sardony. Irony is like a humorous event that takes place. Sardony is like it would be humorous if it wasn't sad. Um, and the sardony about this is the reason why the average wages went up is that most often the people that are laid off are in the low wage category. So if we lost 140,000 people in the lower wages, it means that those that are left are making more wages on average. It doesn't mean everybody got a raise. So those are, in the employment area, lagging indicators. They have to do with what was going on in November and October. So having a stimulus package at the end of December and possibly another one in January could cause those things, those numbers to start looking good in late February and into March. So I would expect that to occur. I also expect another thing. Please prepare yourselves for this. We're going to start seeing numbers in the stock market that look astronomically large as far as the growth. When, well, we, when we hit midway through March, when people are looking at the year-over-year -year returns of the market, it's going to be absurd because we were really, really down in March. What were you going to say? Lost it because I was listening to you. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Interesting point about the market. When you're going to see really, really ri uh, steep rises in the market, particularly since March, when you get your statements for the fourth quarter. But here's here's another point. Remember and kind of buckle your seatbelt. The market has hit another record. Did you know that relative to GDP? The market has hit a record relative to GDP. Which one? There's so many records that are being hit right now. I don't know if, and, and some of them are not good records. Go ahead. Market value of U.S. common stock is 185% of GDP right now, which is the highest it's ever been. It's higher than it was in 2000 before the 50% drop in the market. This is the highest it's ever been. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't go higher, but that's one of the reasons we think that there we're, at some point we're due for a correction. I don't know what will trigger the correction, Maybe it will become, and maybe it will come after the boom that starts in the in the third or fourth quarter of this year. Uh, but at some point, something somebody will sneeze, and something will happen, and there'll be a correction. The most likely correction, and there's certainly no, there's certainly no, it's not even a fifty percent probability. But the most likely issue is the market is not factored in the effect of the new variant of the virus, and we get a lot of viruses, and we get a lot of hospitals filling up, and shutdowns hit again. And we get a drop in GDP in the first quarter, and the market might not be able to stomach that and take a nosedive. If so, it would be very temporary. But at some point, when the market is this high, a correction is going to happen now. Yeah. We may be talking about this, as you said, for the next four years, waiting for it to happen. Uh, but the market is just, in some ways, in astronomically high positions. Yeah, and, and that's that's kind of our, our, our statement about this is, when we make a decision about buying or selling, we look at the numbers and we say, is this a big gain or is this a big loss? Well, if it's a big gain, we can take a sale. 
Uh, and, and we make that decision pretty regularly. Uh, this is another thing coming at the end of last year, I got some calls from people that had talked to their CPAs and they said, we need to do some tax loss harvesting. We got a lot of gains this year. And this is weird because this is another one of those things that, that brokers can do cold calls on and they'll get paid a lot of money for doing these things. Tax loss harvesting, particularly in a portfolio that's intended to be growth oriented, means that you're selling the part of your portfolio that's down so that you can offset the part of your portfolio that's up, which means that if you do it absolutely perfectly, you made no profit at all, you simply broke even, which is not generally the long-term purpose of a growth-oriented portfolio. The other side of that is doing tax loss harvesting assumes you've got something that's got a loss. Right. And a lot of stuff right now is in gain, <laughs> not much in loss. I was looking for some somebody who wanted there was somebody who wanted to do tax loss harvesting. You could buy something else as a result of selling something. And I got to looking through her portfolio and there just wasn't anything in there that we could sell that had a loss in it. And and that's that is the other piece of this is that when you're doing a sale of a stock for tax purposes or buying a, an investment for only tax reasons, unless you have other portions of your portfolio that are designed for growth orientation and so on, then you lose the growth orientation. We do have some commercials to play. Because this goes back to the, to the question that John Anderson was asking. Um, is there another reason to stay away from, uh, from municipal bonds? Interest rates being low is a big reason. Second to that is that we're still waiting to see what the impact of the pandemic is on municipalities. There is a delay of about 18 months on, on these things because tax revenue for municipalities is collected generally at the end of a year based on valuations at the beginning of that year. So the taxes that were received at the local level for property, for instance, for 2020 were based on valuations made at the beginning of 2020. If we see a big jump in the valuation of property taxes going forward, we, say, we may see municipalities with a lot of extra tax revenue, but we could see a lot of other things happen in the middle of this too. Sales tax revenue was horribly down across the nation. So it's another one of those areas that we have to mix up all of these ingredients and then unmix them to figure out what was what. And we got to play some commercials. Wait a minute. We already played commercials because we got disconnected. Oh, uh, yeah. We I don't have to play commercials anymore. We don't need no stinking commercials. We got lots of good stuff. Um, the Biden, the incoming administration for Biden has just announced their top pick for the head of the SEC. His name's Gary Gensler. And... Uh, is definitely a he he is a cop uh, in a way that he is about the law and making sure that the law is followed. And I like to see the SEC chaired by by kind of ingoing outgoing somebody that's that's more laid back followed by somebody that's strict followed by somebody that's more laid back. The the uh, chairman Clay was not a. Um, he was not crazy laid back. 
he had a lot of restrictions that were in place. He did a good job as the top cop for the SEC. Having a real cop come into this at this point is good because this is something we know about recessions. That's when all the fraud comes out. When we see a recession, that's when, you know, this is how Harry Madoff got caught. Um, or Bernie Madoff. All right, let's call him Harry. Uh, Bernie Madoff got caught because of a recession. If times had been good the whole time, his Ponzi scheme would have run forever. As long as more people would give him money, he'd just give that money to the other people and everything's good. Except that we had a recession and people needed to get money to pay other things because other parts of the market were down and they went to get money and Bernie said, hey, I don't have your money. I gave it away to everybody else and me. Um, That's a problem. So coming out of a recession, we really need a good cop in charge of the SEC. and, And that's what it looks like we've got. And in this case, it's a bureaucratic role. This is not somebody who's a lifetime politician. In a completely different subject. And now for something completely different. The FAA, Federal Aeronautic Administration, approved drones to fly to deliver packages without somebody monitoring them. Yep. It's a big deal. And they've already approved drones, by the way, to fly uh, on railroads, to survey railroad tracks and survey power lines. This is the first time they've actually approved them to fly where there are people. There's a major shift came in in FAA uh, regulation recently that people didn't pay a lot of attention to. Basically, if you have a drone that weighs more than 25 grams, we now have 32 months left to get a transponder on it or it can't fly. Interesting. Sorry, 250 grams. So basically any of the more heavy, any of the heavier drones. Well, I'm just heavier. The, The Mavic, which was the most popular drone out there weighs a lot more than that right there's a dgi mini that they've come out with now that's it's basically a toy but it's a toy that can be flown without a license and without a transponder but starting 32 months from now if a drone is flown that's a that's the same size as the drones you've seen flying around if you've seen any they're going to have to have a transponder on it's going to raise the price dramatically and it's very difficult to find those right now so the world is changing. And the reason they want the transponders on them is so they can have drones flying in the air with other aircraft without a risk. And so they can monitor it and take the air traffic control, can set up transponder radars to check where these things are and what they're doing. Um, it's going to change the it's going to change things a lot. Among other things, Amazon will be dropping um, at some point in the near future, will be dropping packages on your doorstep using a drone. Right. There's and that's- a little this is back to automation again. I mean, when you've got somebody that is making these deliveries, the most expensive part of that is the person that's driving it from point A to point B. And the most expensive driving point A to point B are rural rural clients. And they're delivering to rural clients, but it costs them a lot of money to do that. Drones can do small packages much cheaper to rural clients than they can. And, and industrial small parts delivery. You're going to see a lot more of that as well. Yeah. So just as an example, say somebody lives way out on a county road somewhere. They ordered from Amazon. Amazon's going to have to have somebody that drives out down that road. There are no other customers down that road. So they've got to drive a long way out of their way to deliver maybe one package, which is just part of delivery. You know, that's just part par for the course. You got to take it. If you're going to, if you're going to make these deliveries, you got to make them for all, all these people. Okay. 
if you have a good drone that has a capability of taking one package to that one house, then you have saved possibly 30 minutes of driving for a human. Uh, and you have increased the speed at which those other packages that are being delivered by a human arrive. So we're, we're moving down that route and we're still in the lead of the rest of the world on this area. Interesting. I was concerned about wires and things like that. How is the drone going to avoid hitting wires? Because I used to fly helicopters and I can tell you that not hitting wires is a major thing that keeps helicopters high. The drones, by definition, have to fly low. And the answer is that they've come up with the technology to do that. There's a sonic system that basically can detect wires and small branches. I don't know how it works. I just know that it's been tested and developed and it works. And that's going to be a big factor in these new drones. Yeah. And so that that is one or more than one facet of automation that is on the horizon. We've got cars, you know, American companies are in the lead for the technology and self-driving American companies are in the lead for the technology and self-flying drones. Automated uh, technology is ours. Uh, we, we need to hang on to this. This is the thing. This is an electrical engineering concept. What's dangerous about this is that making new drones to do the things that we're trying to do here, we have to make... This is the, this is the point where you make the decision on the, on the supply chain for these creations, these new... This is something that hasn't been created before. Typically, when you do the, the research on how you're going to manufacture something and get it out to market, you say, all right, um, how much would it take to build this thing? And if you're a small company, you're going to have to use somebody else's factory, and they may set up a line for you. If you're a slightly larger company, you set up your own factory floor. Well, that has to be automated. This is the big question we had earlier, that last hour and this hour. How do we remove ourselves from dependency on China for the supply chain? And the only way to do it is to start doing it. So as these new technologies pop up to say we need to start doing these, and this is an area that I am, as much as I think that Tesla is overpriced right now, what they're doing with their gigafactories is the right way of doing it. They're setting up for automation in the United States and they're spearheading that. I mean, we've got a plant coming up that's almost finished in Austin. We've got plants that every place that they're being built and they're designed for automation. This is how we get ahead of it. This is how we move forward. Is that now we got to figure out how do we, how do we automate chip manufacturing computer chips? Because this is why this week, Ford had to shut down a big plant, not because they didn't have orders for cars because the car orders are starting to take off. Nope, it's because they didn't have enough microchips because when the plants got shut down for the pandemic, things like new webcams and new tablets and new computers that were being purchased by everybody to do work at home took up all of the the excess reserve of computer chips and pulled the, those are the same chips that are being used from one place to another this is they're they're universal so now ford's had to shut down its plant because the suppliers that were solely their suppliers had to go to other people because they lost ford during the pandemic this is this is supply chain stuff we need to to get some serious work on 
automating our own computer manufacturing facilities, our own computer chip manufacturing facilities. Uh, and th- that, that is the first step. You get the smallest pieces that everybody needs and you start on that. And that's how we move the supply chain. That part hasn't been done yet. Let me inject some good news here on a completely different subject. The new vaccines that are very effective, they're 95% effective for the COVID virus are messenger RNA vaccines. Now, you may not know what messenger RNA is, just take in RNA as, as a term. They work at about a 95% level, whereas the vaccines that were made the old-fashioned way by putting dead or portions of virus in, into your system to create an immunity, the ones that were developed in China and other places are only about 50% effective. They were developed in record time, and they're very effective. Well, here's the key. The same concept has been worked on for years, and it can be used to target cancer. In other words, once a cancer, once a type of cancer's uh, characteristics are identified, it can literally, the messenger RNA has been shown in small scale tests to be able to alert your body to say there's a cancer here, here's what it looks like, and then because once cancer forms, all the cells are, are nearly identical. Yeah, that's, bot- that's a big, big deal right there, the fact that we can use some of the technology that's coming out of the pandemic to do things like check for cancer. That's fantastic. In other words, we made the the same technology that was used to defeat the pandemic and get accelerated by the pandemic may be the cure for cancer. And that's not, that's a maybe, but it's a very good maybe that's coming on the horizon. Now that's that is I've talked about this before. The boom in technology in medicine that is going to come about because of the pandemic. It's going to be fascinating to watch because the research that's taken place across the field of medicine has been phenomenal during this time period. We have spent a huge amount of money as a country and as a world on developing new technologies to use in our day-to-day health which should cause prices to come down long-term and it should cause our standard of living as far as health goes to go up as well as our life expectancy. So if we have an, uh, an, a, a messenger RNA test that can be looking for cancer and eventually possibly treat cancer, and there's a lot of promising research on that, this is this is one of the number one causes of death in the country, period, pre-pandemic. So we, coming out of this pandemic, we may have a lot less people dying in the future for the things that they're dying now. The other thing is we've had the most, the lowest death rate for lung cancer that we've had in history this year. Right. Why that is? It's a good question. We're about out of time. So if you'd like to talk to us off the air... We have voicemail waiting locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can listen to recordings of our program going back lots of years. Our new podcast links are up there. You can sign up for our newsletter and read our newsletter there. You can contact us directly through the Contact Us form or you can email us at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.